0: Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me again in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Focus will be on the middle section of this chapter, verses 8 through 20 specifically. Now, just prior to this passage, uh, we were reminded of our identity, our true identity. We are children of God by faith in Christ. Uh, All the other labels we use to describe ourselves our second, third, fourth level identity. We are primarily, because of Christ, what he has done and what God has done by sending his spirit, we are now children of the living God. We are no longer orphans. We are no longer slaves. We are children of God. And he has been spending great time, Paul, that is, in this letter to correct distortions that have come in uh, where Jewish Believers, at least professing believers, were coming in and they were adding to the gospel of God's grace the requirement of keeping certain rites and rituals that were true of the Jewish culture in particular. In adding to the gospel, thus changing it, distorting it, making it no gospel at all. Uh, You see, faith in Christ plus something else is not good news. It's the same old news that you've got to earn your way somehow. And he writes to correct this. And so last week we spent quite a bit of time, if you will, celebrating the fact of our adoption in Christ. And now these verses that follow come as an immediate warning. Since we have gone from slavery to sonship, let us not go from sonship back to slavery. That will be the pull. That will be what everything tells us to do and tempts us towards. But don't do it. Don't go from being children to slaves again. Very practical, very real for us today Hear God's word, starting at verse 8, Galatians 4. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let us pray. Father, again, reassure us of our identity. Lord, while we can see what your word says, we recognize we need the Spirit's ministry to testify to the fact, the reality, our adoption, as sons and daughters. Lord, everything naturally, sinfully pulls us to believe that we can somehow earn our way. Lord, we confess that to be a lie. We recognize that only Christ has earned such a thing. And only in Him can we be right with You. Lord, I pray that You'd free us from any vestige of hope and trust in ourselves. That You might receive all the glory and that we might be empowered to live for You. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For as long as I can remember, being on this property, 13 years for me, I came shortly after the church bought this property and we had the house converted into our sanctuary and offices. As long as I can remember, we have always had a skunk problem up at that building. A significant skunk problem. I mean, real skunks, not related to the pastors or anything like that. It stinks up there in April and May. And the reason is, this house has the foundation walls that, that you constantly have to fill in or they will burrow and dig in there and make uh, their little homes in there. And uh, as construction has gone up around us, uh, they've gotten the memo and the skunks all come there to party. That's where they go. And uh, in April, May, if you've been up there, you know what I'm talking about. It's a disgusting smell. I mean, there's few smells quite like skunks. We can all think of really bad smells, but a skunk smell universally is agreed upon. It stinks, bad, putrid. It can give you a headache when it's as intense as it is. Right? People who've been in the office know exactly what I mean. And also, it can, uh, it can actually make your eyes water. It's so bad sometimes. In this year, like every year, we always have to get traps out and trap the skunks. And we have some trapper guy who comes out, and I don't know what he does with them. Sometimes I wonder if he comes back at night and puts them back there, because they're back the next morning. But this year, I stopped counting at 15 that we had trapped in less than a month. Now, it may be 18. Pastors are prone to higher numbers than actually are. So 15 for sure might have been up towards 20 that we actually trapped. And what happens is the male skunks that are dominant, they go around the property and they spray so all their lady friends know it's them. Okay, but when you keep trapping that male skunk, a new male skunk fills in that role and does it again. So It's kind of a tough situation. You need to let it play out over a couple week period or prolong it for six weeks. We got the full orb experience this year. It was the worst ever. Stunk. One time I came in at 10 a.m., I had a breakfast appointment, someone came in a little late and there's the trap that we'd set underneath the bushes, dragged 10 yards out in front of my office door, 10 feet, with a big male skunk pulling it with its teeth with its lady friend inside. Just smelled like you couldn't believe. But you know what's amazing? When you sit in that stink for so long, you start to not notice it. You don't even recognize it. It doesn't even, it doesn't faze you at all. Until someone from the outside comes in and they look, you know, they're grimacing and they just look like, how could you be in this stuff? And we noticed this, but generally we got used to it until you would walk out of the building, drive out of the building, go somewhere else and smell fresh air or some good smell. Then you'd be, wow, this has been a terrible smell. You don't really notice it the most until you go in and smell the fresh air. Then you come back to the place and it stinks like it never stank before, even worse, it's the worst you can imagine, smelling that again after you've smelled the real fresh air. As I've studied this passage and this subject, I came across a statement by a pastor said something profound and it relates directly to what I've just expressed to you. Pastor Robert Rayburn said, But why would a Christian who has tasted the fresh air of the gospel go back to the putrid atmosphere of works? and human performance. You see, that is what our works are like to God. Putrid. Only in Christ do we become His sons and daughters that He loves because of Christ's sweetness, His aroma of righteousness. That's why we have relationship with God. That's why we are acceptable to God. Through Christ's merit, not our merit. And once you've tasted that, my brothers and sisters, why go back to the yoke of burden that we put on ourselves, that told ourselves in our spirit that we had to earn our way, that we had to do more to make ourselves acceptable to God? Why would we go back to that slavery when we've been made sons and daughters and we've smelled the fresh air? Why go back to that putrid smell of our works? Yet we do it all the time. And this is so very important that we get this. Paul keeps repeating it, and so I keep preaching it. But there are two sides that we tend to go off on either side. The side of utter legalism and slavery to rules and rituals that make us think we're better with God, that He loves us more, that we're better than the people around us. All those legalisms, we go off the road this side. Then we correct it, we go off the other side, because we can't keep up works. Nobody can, and they go to license. And we don't care anymore, and we do whatever we want. Paul said so clearly to us early in Galatians, We know that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. He said it so poignantly in just two verses in Galatians 2, that three times he says it three different ways. He also says, So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You can never make yourself right with God by your works. James Bordwine said this, and I have it quoted there for you. From the Apostle Paul's perspective, this, this argument that he's making, this is a battle about the fundamental nature of Christianity itself. A battle which determines whether or not Christianity is centered on the redemptive work of Christ or in human merit, as in all the other religions of the world. Let me be clear every other religion of the world is ultimately based on human merit. There may be lip service paid to the example of this redeemer or that sacrificer or this prophet or whoever, but in the end, it comes down to you making it work. You fulfilling it. Study at all the tenets of Islam. It's entirely a religion of human merit. Study Buddhism or Hinduism. They're religions of human merit. Old Judaism that's being purported here by the Judaizers is a religion of human merit. Even forms of Christianity, though they say they be Christian, they purport you do this, you do this, you do this, and this, and you're saved. They are religions of human merit, and they stink. Paul is arguing for the gospel, for eternal life. That's what he's talking about here. Nothing less. Eternal life is what is at stake. When we consider where our trust lies. In our works or in the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Paul uses a very personal connection with the Galatians. He has spent time with them. Uh, He has preached the gospel to them. He has seen them come to Christ, profess faith in Christ. He has seen them show fruits of repentance. They acted in a way that accorded with what they said. So their works manifested that they did believe. He saw it. And so he writes to them saying, your sons don't go back to slavery. And so he does it in a personal way with personal reference to his visits to them. Now he's speaking primarily to the Gentile believers who did not have the background in Judaism that the Judaizers had, the ones who were trying to oppress them. Let's look at the text together and you'll see first Paul referred to the fact that apart from Christ, we are slaves. He says it more subtly here, but it's a reference to what he has been repeating for the first three chapters of Galatians and in many of his other books, and indeed scripture, that apart from Jesus Christ and his merit, we are actually slaves. Slaves to the penalty of our own works that cannot stand before God's judgment. Slaves to sin itself because we cannot defeat sin in our own power. So he addresses these Gentile Christians as he writes in verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So he speaks of our being or people being apart from Christ. When we are apart from Christ, there is a certain elementary principle that works in every person, I believe. That is ultimately merit. It may take the form of a formal religion and its different tenets, or it might just be the person who says, I don't go to church, but basically I do good things. Most people in their natural state believe that that's how they'll be accepted by God, by doing good. That's an elementary basic principle of human thought. We'll return to that in a moment. So look what it says in verse 8. When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. Now, he's speaking specifically to a, a Gentile group from the Greek and Roman culture they had literal idols that they were enslaved to they worshiped them they believed they had power carved images even learned people would carry little little etchings or little carvings of a, a former relative or ancestor that they believed was powerful smart or otherwise favored by the gods in the pantheon of Greece or Rome and they carry those with them in their cloaks they would worship and trust those idols very literally but you know and I know that we can worship idols that are not god uh no matter what it is, if we worship it instead of God. It could be our money, it could be our image, it could be the stuff we're accumulating, Uh, it could be all manner of things. It could even be personal relationships with people that we idolize more than what God thinks of us. Fill in the blank, but we are idol-making factories, as Calvin said, regarding our hearts. And apart from Christ, we are enslaved to that. And even in Christ, you all know, as I know, the pull to those other idols. But in Christ, he grants us freedom, no doubt. But here, he's referring to the fact that they have become slaves or are slouching back towards slavery from sonship. So he reminds them once they've come. Look at verse 9. It says, now that you have come to know God, you were formerly idolaters, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again? This is a profound statement. Please see it. For it seems on the outward that when we come to know God, that's what happens. We come to know him. We discover him. We trust him. We accept him. We use that language. And indeed, that describes our experience, right? But the fact is, really what's happened is we have become known by God. He has initiated this. Now, this is important because he's bringing an air of humility to their status in God. See, if we're not humble before God and recognizing it's his initiation by his will, his power, his timing, then we have this foothold of, of human merit still there. Well, I did choose him. He did all this, but I chose him. And he's saying, you know what? You thought that. But, you know, and ra- rather, really, let's look at it the way it is. God chose to know you. Okay, that, that's the first place stature we should have is one of humility. And Paul reminds them of this. If they're going to get away from trust in their works... He has to recognize, they have to, we have to recognize that really what has happened is we've become known by God. In that case, it says in verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? I just suggested to you that weak and worthless elementary principles of the world have to do with the basic human belief that by being good, you'll be accepted by God. Uh, before this, he uses the term, and he uses it in Colossians as well, and he was speaking specifically about the way the Judaizers viewed Jewish law. They viewed it in the same way. Erroneously, they believed that by following certain rites and rituals, circumcision, the dietary laws, particular holidays to follow, if they followed those, they would be right with God. They turned those things in to elementary principles of the world. If I'm just good, God looks at me. And you know what the modifier for elementary principles of the world is? Look what it says. This is what they're worth. Weak and worthless. That's what they get you. Religion gets you nothing. Following rules, in that sense, defining religion that way, elementary principles, is weak and worthless and will not do anything for you in eternity. We have reference to the Gentile believers apparently falling back or slouching back towards this works trap that was laid by the Judaizers. You know, recently this week, just to give an an illustration of how people function primarily under the elementary principles of the world as it relates to their relationship with God. It's all around us. In fact, if, if you doubt that, think about the death of Senator Ted Kennedy this last week. Not to analyze his politics or any of those details, I don't even know personally what he believed about God. I don't know. I know that he was a professing Roman Catholic. And the Roman Catholic Church has a very distinct position on several issues that he consistently promoted opposing those issues, constantly. Uh, Many uh, hardline Roman Catholics, or those who would consider themselves faithful Roman Catholics, were constantly livid with him about his lack of faithfulness to the church's teaching. By the way, many of which those teachings, whether it be on abortion or homosexual practice, we'd agree with the Catholic Church on. But in that case... Kennedy continued to promote those positions, but considered himself a faithful Catholic. So he died. Now there's the question surrounding, uh, what did he believe? Uh, is he right with God? And those are worthy questions we should ask ourselves all the time. So again, I'm not casting any kind of judgment on him, but listen to the discussion that was around it, because I find it speaks to people's propensity to have elementary principles that they believe they'll be made right with God by their good outweighing their bad. And it was all over the media yesterday. Most vividly in the USA Today in the Faith and Reason section... Uh, Kathy Lynn Grossman, who's the editor of that portion of the paper, she wrote about the contrast between Kennedy's funeral service, which was laden with praise, kind words from priests and politicians alike, all the good he did for the poor and so forth. Yet on the Internet, there was a, a, a moving parallel buzz of vitriol, is the way she described it. Condemnation of the man for the hypocrisy that people said he had. So you had two very different outlooks on this person and his status with God. And, you know, ultimately, when we talk about someone else, we're also asking the question, are we right with God? Or we should be asking it if we're going to say or judge or discern any of this. So listen to what Grossman wrote concerning these two reactions that she saw taking place. They disturbed her. She said in the article, are you and I the judges of atonement? How much good is enough, she wrote. Today, she writes, at Ted Kennedy's funeral mass, one priest said, wove together memory and hope. But what of the judge on high? If you, she says, like most Americans, believe in a God who makes final judgment. So she says, first of all, most people believe in a God that makes final judgment. Pretty elementary, right? The sense of it people have, whether they know the Bible or not, or any formal religion. But listen to what she says next. This is what's so profound and, I believe, applicatory. Like most Americans, she wrote, You may believe all good people go to heaven. Did you hear that? She says that most Americans believe all good people go to heaven. In other words, good is defined by the things they do that are good outweighing the bad. That's what she's saying. And she's saying most people believe that is what makes you right with God. And I say that stinks because it's not true. It's not true at all. And many people are misled by it, just as the people in the church of Galatia were starting to be Misled by it. She continues to say, so who's good enough? Was he a good enough Catholic? A good enough Christian? A good enough man in the end? How much atonement is enough? Who decides? And that's how she ends the article. No mention of Kennedy's belief or faith in Christ, merit on his behalf. No mention of the very explicit teaching of Scripture that a person cannot be justified by his works. No mention of the correct order of things. A person comes to faith in Christ and then begins to exhibit works that are in line with that profession by God's grace and by his working. Instead, what we see from her and exist in all around us are the elementary principles of the world that Paul says are weak and worthless, and I say they stink. It's important that we understand the true gospel. We live in a day where, quote-unquote, most Americans believe that all good people go to heaven. Problem is, there are no good people. Only one has ever been good. And our faith must be in Him. He is our substitute. He is who we stand before the Holy God, clothed in His righteousness. It's only Christ in Him alone and faith in Him alone that will ever make us able to be right with God. That's it. So many are enslaved to this damning notion that our works are what make us right with God. Even people sitting in the pew, religiously, every week, think they're alright with God because they're sitting in the pew every week. But in Christ we are set free. That's the message of Galatians. And this is what Paul brings back to the sons and daughters of God who are becoming slaves again. And look at verse 12 through 14. Again, he has already been saying this very directly, but now he again refers to the freedom in Christ that we have. Verse 12, notice he says brothers... Then in verse 19, little children. So he's no longer speaking really to the Judaizers as such, or about the Judaizers, although he does refer to them in a moment. But he's speaking to the people that he can, he can remember their faces. He can remember them when they ministered to him when he was sick, when he had this ailment that he speaks of. He can remember that they would give their own eyes to him if they could have. He remembers that love, that fruit, when he says, Brothers, in verse 12, I entreat you, I beg you, I ask you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. And he's not saying become as I am the Hebrew of Hebrews and the Jew of Jews who kept the law and was on the road to being the highest ranking Pharisee of all. That's not who he's saying be like. He's saying be like me, Paul, who's basically been cast out by all that. The one who either had malaria and was so sick when he came to you that he could barely stand or probably most probably one who had such a a gross eye ailment that his eyes oozed and he couldn't even see out of them and they had to take care of him. And he was humbled for all his smartness. He was humbled. He's saying be like that totally dependent on Christ. No hope in my flesh. No hope in my merit. I can't even do anything without you helping me do it. Be like that. That's what he says. Humility. Coming to God through Christ. Verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Apparently, Paul was either traveling, got sick, and had to stay there so they could take care of him, or he went there because someone said that they can help him with his ailment but it was because he was there in that weakened physical state that he was had the opportunity to share the gospel that christ set them free he's without saying he's referring back to what he's already said in, in earlier in the chapter in just his general message of the gospel he's saying remember that message remember when i gave it to you remember the condition i was in when i gave you that message well why are you why are you going away from that do you remember that Do you remember the long nights we spent talking about this Verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you, it was tough on everybody, you didn't scorn or despise me. You didn't kick me out because I was a pain or trouble or a burden, but you received me as an angel of God, literally a messenger of God. As Christ Jesus, you received me. You showed fruit that only someone who's truly a believer could show. Now what's going on, is what he's saying. Why the change? There's such a difference in you before. Now it seems like it's changed. He was needy, difficult to treat. Yet, they laid themselves down, even to the point where he suggested they probably would have gouged their own eyes out and gave them to him if they could make him better. This refers to this constant pullback to slavery. He says this because he sees a pull upon them. The Judaizers were impressing them, perhaps. The Judaizers were, were making them doubt about their security, about their relationship to God and Christ. The Judaizers were bringing their smarts and their heritage, their lineage, their pedigree in it, into it, and they were making these Gentiles who were probably still throwing out the wooden idols they carried, and they were struggling with security, and those Judaizers came and said, do you struggle with security here. Do this. Do this. Be part of this, and you'll be okay. Be part of this big, monolithic movement that brings more security than this simple relationship with Christ you're talking about. There's way more security in this institution than there is in Jesus, right? So the pull is constant upon us. We all go through moments of insecurity and wonder, is this right? There's a good friend of mine in Nathan's that we grew up with who uh he and Nathan were believers before I was and as I came to Christ they helped disciple me and some adults in the church did as well. So we headed off to Chicago where Nathan and I went to Moody Bible Institute, much like some of our youth here. And then our friend went to University of Illinois at Chicago. He basically could have gone to various places, but he wanted to hang close to where we were so we could hold each other up. Well, as we went uh it didn't take but a few months and he started to kind of get sucked into some stuff that that caused him heartache he went through a trial and of, of faith really where he wondered if all he had learned about the gospel was real and he struggled with it as he met different religions there and different levels of devotion to the religions and he was struggling with that and then he flipped over and got into relationships that caused him to to question any kind of any kind of rule or any kind of moral standard and he went to the other direction and we watched him for Four to six years, I can't remember the exact amount, where he just went away from what he had learned to know to be the truth. And we would talk to him. We'd say, man, I, almost the words of Paul, you're perplexing me. What, what's going on? Don't you remember? What are you doing now? And he wouldn't say he renounces it. He's just saying he didn't know, and he didn't know where he fit, and he didn't know what his life was like. I see it all the time. People lose their identity. They bend back towards the slavery. And before you know it, they either become a slave of legalism again, or slave of license, either one will kill him. He pulls us back, pulls at us. and this is what Paul writes of. Paul understands this. We see this in other passages that he writes. Look at verse 16. He's coming to them to confront them on this, and he says, "In verse 16, "Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth?" Uh, they're mad at him, apparently, or they don't like his tone. Am I your enemy? I'm telling you the truth. Basically, I'm telling you the same thing I told you before and you all agreed with. Now you disagree or you think I'm your enemy. Now he says, without labeling them particularly, verse 17, he refers to the Judaizers and their motives and intentions. Listen close, because I think it has direct parallel to much of what we see all the time in our lives and in our day. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you... May may make much of them. What he means is this: they come into the church, these old school religious people, trusting in works, and they see a joy present in new believers, and they also see a lack of security and rooting at first. And they say to them, "Hey, this is great, but you need this too. You really got to have this too. We've been doing this for a long time. We really know what we're talking about. You got to be circumcised." You've got to eat these certain foods. Don't eat these other kind of foods. You also have to follow a few holidays. You do that plus this. And it seems like they care. But really what they're doing is creating an insecurity in people that can never do those things, can never have that lineage, can't have that pedigree. They just don't have it. And it ultimately serves to build them up so the Judaizers look like the spiritually elite ones because these poor Gentiles can't get it right or they strive their whole time trying to get it right, again making them Pharisees, the super-religious. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. He says in verse 18, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. It's okay to have people care about your well-being. When it's the truth. And not only when I am present with you, He's speaking of the fact that he has given them the truth. The truth is what should be exalted, what should be celebrated, what should be followed. And just because he's not there mentioning it consistently and constantly does not mean they need to waver in such a way as to follow this false message. Why do we fall back into slavery? It's just a combination of many things. One, we just can't believe. We can't believe or don't want to believe that we can't contribute something. There's not something really innately good about us. We just don't like the idea. It's called the big lie. that underlies much of entertainment today, too, that ultimately people are good, and if pressed, they'll do the right thing, even though history over and over tells us a different story about what people do when pressed. But you know what Paul does in reminding the gospel? Again, people are set free. We hear the gospel afresh. We need to hear it every day, let alone every week. He says some amazing things in the final verses that show us that labor for this message, for the purity of this message, for the truth of this message, for the regular preaching of this message, the teaching of this message, labor for the gospel and the freedom it brings is absolutely worth any suffering that comes because of it. He says in verse 19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's saying it's a tough process of seeing people come to maturity in Christ. And just as childbirth is not a quick thing, it's over hours and hours and hours before that baby comes. The anguish of childbirth, that's the life of discipleship and walking in this world of sin and struggling as God makes us into His image until He's formed in us, Christ formed in us, And it's worth it, Paul says, because that's real freedom. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. In other words, he's being sharp with them here. He wants them to see and feel how he feels towards them, but he can't do it in a letter. He just wants them to know, I wish I could be there, but I can't, so you've got to hear this. It's that important. In any amount of suffering that comes, it's worth it. And Paul understood this. He understood it physically because he suffered from many things. Emotionally, because he suffered from many things. Socially, because he suffered in many ways from being cast out of his social caste. Financially, he lost much by turning to Christ. He's a tent maker rather than a scholar who in those days would become rich. Gave that up professionally, psychologically, tried spiritually for sure all worth it, he would say. And he does say so when he writes to the Colossians later. He says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul struggled and toiled, and it was all worth it so that people would be set free by the gospel. It was worth it. Is it worth it for you? you Struggling and toiling being a parent. Constantly struggling with the secularism of our day and the the affront to God in our children, trying to help them see total truth, God's truth, the scripture. That's a never-ending struggle. You think it's over when your children move on. It doesn't. It's just a constant struggle because we're going to interact with them, just as we hopefully can interact with our parents if we have believing parents that recognize this. And it is a constant struggle. In every phase of our life, it could be with a person who you're trying to help grow in Christ. As pastors and elders of the church, trying to help the people of God be free in the gospel. That it would have its effect, its sanctifying effect in your life. It's not that we promote no rules. That's not what we're promoting. What we're promoting is the gospel as the way for God to discipline our hearts. And give us a desire to obey rather than just make you obey so you feel insecure that you're not right with God if you're not obeying. That's not the gospel and you'll fail. Again, I close by giving you this picture in 159th Street. It's a great example of this because I've seen it happen 10 times in my 13 years where someone ends up sharply in one of those ditches. And sometimes it's a serious action. We had one a couple years ago where a lady was driving down the road. She had kids in the minivan, and she went off the side of the road a little bit. Her tire caught the other side. And what's the first reaction you have when you go off like that? Jerk it back the other way, and she came across, hit a car coming on this way and into our ditch. We had the helicopter come down to pick her up, and it was a huge scene and terrible accident that occurred. And I would suggest to you that as we walk the Christian life, as we live this Christian life, there are two sides of the road that we can go off, humanly speaking. We can go off the side of legalism and moralism that makes ourselves think we're all right with God because of what we do. And we get off on a tangent, and if we don't die over there, we try to correct and we go back and we pitch it all in license, the ditch of license. We say, who cares about all this? And really, think of it this way. You know, you're in that ride at World's of Fun or one of those places where those old Model T cars go around the road, and there's a little metal thing that goes down the middle of the road. You can't go too fast. You can't go too slow because people are coming behind you, but you can't go off the road. And that's sort of like the Holy Spirit guiding us and giving us conviction that as we are come to a sharp bend that we may go off, he brings us back. The Holy Spirit brings His children back. He gives you the spirit of adoption so that you know you're His children. And when tempted to go totally off one side or the other, He, He moves us back. And that's the part that I cannot preach into you. I have to pray, and you have to pray, and rely upon the Holy Spirit to give you that conviction according to His Word so that as those moments of life come where you're tempted to go off the ditch one way or the other, the Spirit of God keeps you, preserves you on that road so that we do not go From a position, sons and daughters, back to slavery. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for our adoption. Lord, we believe that we are your children by faith in Christ. Help us to live our identities. Help us to live as sons and daughters and not run around as orphans and slaves. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing as a prayer our hymn of preparation for the Lord's Supper, as well as a reaction or response to the Word of God preached. It's 332. Let's stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Come, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove.